If you want to turn in your Bibles to James chapter 4, that's where we'll be this morning. We're continuing um, to walk through the series in James chapter 4. We'll be just in the first six verses um, this morning um, is where we'll be at. And just to kind of remind us where we're at, if you haven't been here um, at all in the book of James or haven't been here in a while, James is very concerned about this connection between true faith and outward action. Um, about a genuine godly faith that is trusting in God for salvation, is trusting in God for all things, and that because it is genuine, it demonstrates itself in real life. It demonstrates itself in how we view suffering. It demonstrates itself in how we fight temptation. It demonstrates itself in how we view others in the church and we give others preference within the church. It demonstrates itself in how we speak to one another. It demonstrates itself in how we show wisdom to one another. And this morning we'll show how it demonstrates itself in the way that we have conflict with one another and where that conflict comes from. And this morning we'll be looking at James chapter 4 and looking at the first six verses and looking at the war within. What I think James is doing here is he's just got done finished in chapter 3 and looking at the the dangers of our speech and how how our tongue can destroy and control the rest of our life. And last week we looked at godly wisdom and that how um, wisdom from above shows itself and being open to reason and kindness and showing mercy um, to one another. And then James continues to, to go in that kind of theme and say, well, where does all this ultimately come from? Where does the desire to use our words to hurt come from? Where does the desire to kind of crush people in our arguments and not lift them up? Where does that come from? What is the source of all of that? Because at the end of the day, if all that we're doing is treating the symptoms, if we're just treating the things on the outside, then nothing ultimately changes. If all that we're doing is saying, well, I'll just change the way I talk, or I'll just change the way I interact with people, well, ultimately what's going on in your heart will find another way to work itself out. And so what James is saying here is what ultimately is happening is we need to look inside of ourselves and see what is going on in us that is showing itself outside of us, specifically with conflict. James in this four, these first few verses is talking about conflict among believers, among the church. And he asks the question, where does this come from? Why are we fighting with one another? And the answer is, is not because of one another— It's because of what's going on in my heart. There's something going on in my heart that's showing itself, that's demonstrating itself in conflict and in war and in strife and in arguing and in jealousy and in envy. What I want us to kind of walk away with this morning, you'll see on your message notes, that first couple of lines there is that the conflicts conflicts around us are a result of the conflicts within us. That there's a battle raging over what will have supremacy in our hearts. And God longs to be the sole desire of our hearts. And I'm thankful that this passage ends with the reality that he will give us all the grace we need to make that happen. Everything we need to make it happen where he is the sole desire and pleasure of our hearts. He loves to give that to us. Grace upon grace upon grace. Let's read uh, chapter 4 of James, the first six verses. James says this, as inspired by the Holy Spirit, he says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions or your pleasures are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. 
You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. I want to look at three things this morning. It's your typical sermon. Three points, right? They all start with the same letter. That's the first day of seminary. That's how they teach you to preach. Make sure there's three, and they have to be illiterate. Um, They have to be alliteration with each other. So that's what I have this morning. So my seminary professors are very, very happy um, with me this morning. I have three things this morning from James that I want to share with you. Um, First, I want to look at the fickleness of our hearts. The fickleness of our hearts. The The fact that our hearts are constantly dissatisfied. They're constantly looking for something else, something new, something better, something different. They're constantly in a state of discontentment. And I want to look at that this morning and look at those first three verses there to show that James wants to demonstrate to us that ultimately what's happening, what's wrong with us, what's wrong with our situation is not outside of us, but inside of us. Look again with me in verses one to three. It says, what causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? James continually, just beginning at the very beginning of this, brings it out and just kind of brings it to the surface. You know, we've gone through James. James does not pull any punches. He gets right to the point of the matter. Sometimes it feels a little heavy. He ended a little over the top, but he is getting right to the the core of the matter and showing us, demonstrating to us the, the source of the quarreling and the fighting among us is in us. You see, I think what we want to blame often when we're quarreling and fighting and we're disagreeing and we're frustrated with life and things are going the way that we want them to go, what we immediately blame or tempted to blame is our circumstances. We look outside of us and to say, the reason I'm acting the way I'm acting is because of something going on outside of me. The reason I'm arguing with you is because you said this. The reason I'm fighting with you is because I've had a hard day. The reason we're continually butting heads with each other is because we're in a difficult season of life. And we like to blame things outside of ourselves, don't we? We like to look outside of ourselves and to say, well, if this thing would change, if my circumstances would change, if my upbringing would change, if my kids would change, if my health would change, if my finances would change, if my spouse would change, then I would change. James is saying that's, that's not where it's at. That's not where the problem lies. The problem does not lie outside of you. The problem lies inside of you. He says the reason that we fight, the reason we complain, the reason that we quarrel is because we're not getting what we want. It basically comes down to that. We are all three-year-olds when it comes down to it. We laugh, but it's absolutely true, are we not? When we don't get what we want, we will fight and claw to tooth and nail to get what we want. No matter who it hurts, no matter who it destroys, no matter what kind of uh, uh, difficulty it brings in a relationship, if we don't have it, we will fight to get it. And I think there's a goodness in that. Now, be really careful about what I'm saying here. I think that there's a, a, a godliness to that, that God has placed in us this desire that he wants to be satisfied in him. But the problem is, 
is that we don't ultimately seek to find our desire in God. We don't ultimately fight to seek to have our desires satisfied in Him. We fight to get what we want. We fight for it. And I think the problem is too often is our outward actions are a symptom. They're not the cause. And we spend so much time trying to fix the symptom, we don't actually take a moment to look at the cause. I mean, the question at the end of the day is, what do I want that I'm not getting? So when there's conflict, when there's strife, when there's stress, when there's frustration, the first question needs to be, what do I want that I'm not getting? And then the second question has to be, is that thing that I want a thing from God? Is God placing this desire? Is this is a desire from God in my heart that I'm fighting for, that I'm pursuing, that I'm going after? And I think many times the answer is when there's strife and there's quarrel and all of those things, the answer is no, this is not ultimately from God. This is about me. This is about me getting what I want. You see, we're very happy when we get what we want, right? What is the best and worst parenting for a three-year-old? To get them quiet, what do we do? Just give them what they want, right? It is the best in the sense that it makes them quiet. It is the worst in the sense that it does not help their heart at all. And I think the same, we are in a three-year-old, right? When the world gives us what we want, we are happy. When the world does not give us what we want, we are sad and destroyed and depressed and angry. And all of those things come out in us. I think there's a danger in that, and I think that should show to us what's going on inside of us, not ultimately outside of us, but inside of us. James says again, it's not what, what is, is causing these fights in us is that our passions are at war within us. For those of you who have given your life to Christ and are trusting in him, you have, given, you have been given new life. And along with that new life is a new heart and new desires and new passions and those that are matching up more and more with God. But we are not yet all that we are going to be. We are not yet with the Lord. We are not yet outside of this world. We are not yet over the struggles and the things that are in our hearts. And so those things are still present in our hearts and those things are continually battling against one another. And so James is saying, what are we feeding? What are we giving into? What are we pursuing? And again, he shows the evidence of that is if you are pursuing those things that are from the world and you don't get those things, you will be at enmity. You will be at war with those around you. We see it every single day. We see it in our houses. We see it with our kids. We see it at work. We see it as we're driving. We're constantly at war with those around us. And the ultimate reason is because we're not getting what we want. And so what needs to change is not the things outside of us. It's not our circumstances. What needs to change is our desires. The things we're longing for are those things we find pleasure in, those things we find satisfaction in. Those things need to adjust. And when those things need to adjust, we can go to the world and we can be satisfied even if we don't get what we want in the moment, we can still be satisfied and be at peace because we know we have something greater that is giving us this. You see in James 1, again, at the beginning of the book of James, he talks about this very thing. James says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. In other words, it's not God's fault. 
We instantly want to blame someone else, and ultimately what we're saying is we're blaming God in this. And James is saying it's not God's fault. God doesn't tempt us with evil. He tempts no one, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed. What does James say? By his own desire. When I want a thing, and I'm not getting that thing, and I will pursue it, and James says, I will pursue it even if it kills me. I will pursue it. Even if it ends in my destruction, I will pursue it. Because this is what our hearts in and of themselves in their natural state are longing for. You see, there's a secret battle, a quiet battle going inside of our hearts that we just simply need to acknowledge. I'm going to confess something this morning, and I, I'm, I'm only confessing it, maybe not only. My wife's not here this morning, so I'm going to whisper it in case she's watching somewhere else. Um, we've never admitted this to each other, so I'm admitting it right now in front of all of us. She'll watch this later. It's okay. Everybody calm down a second. It's going to be okay. There's a secret war going on in the Langdon house that nobody talks about, but it's going on. It is the war over the trash can position. We don't mention it. We don't talk about it. But one of us likes the trash can in one position. One of us likes it in the other position. One of us is right. The other is Katie. We don't talk about it. We've never talked about it. But the trash can, sometime in the middle of the night, always gets shifted. I wake up, it's shifted, and I have to move it again. And it's very frustrating, and it's very aggravating, but we don't talk about it. We don't talk about it. We've never mentioned it. Neither one of us has ever said, did you move the trash can? We know who's doing it. We know who the other person is in that instance. There's a war going on in our house that we don't seem to talk about, but it shows itself in an evidence of the fact that that trash can gets moved every single day. Now, they've been gone since yesterday. Won't get back till tonight, so the trash can is in its upright and correct position and will be probably until tomorrow morning. But the reality is we walk through life in that way too, don't we? We don't recognize, we don't acknowledge the fact that there's a war going on inside of us. There's a war for our affections. There's a war for our desires. There's a war for our pleasures. There's a war for our very souls. And we may not acknowledge it, but there is evidence of it in the way that we snap at one another, in the way that we are unkind and cruel to one another, in the way that we bicker with one another, in the way that we have conflict with one another. It's demonstrating there's a war going inside of us, and in that moment that it shows itself in that way, we have lost that particular battle. We have given ourselves over to those particular desires and needs. You see, there's a war going on for our souls. And what we see in in verses 2 and 3 there is James goes on to say, as you desire and you do not have, and it doesn't stop there. And it goes on to say, and so you desire and do not have. Here's the result of that. You murder. You take life. You wish life was ended. You covet and cannot obtain. So what? So you fight and you quarrel. You see, this is the reality for us. Now, we may not actively murder someone. We may not be actively fighting and quarreling on the outside, but Jesus doesn't kind of give us options about taking physically of someone's life, does he? Jesus said if we think in our hearts that anger is rising in our hearts, we have, we have just as well as committed murder in our hearts. 
We are fighting within our hearts. The sin is still there. It is present. It is still eating away with us. And we will do drastic things to get what we want. Again, going back to the three-year-old. Some of you have three-year-olds in your house right now. I'm way past that. Thank Jesus. I am way past the three-year-old stage. If you're in the three-year-old stage, wait to the 18-year-old stage. It's a whole other set of hard um, in that. But when a three-year-old does not get what they want, they will do anything to get it, won't they? kick and punch and tantrums and on the floor and throw and we look at them and we roll our eyes and we say how foolish James is saying we're the three-year-olds that when we don't get what we want we will do anything to get it even murder even wish in our hearts I just wish you would go away forever I wish you weren't here We may not do anything with it. We may not act on it outside of us, but that sin, that desire is in our hearts. And there's a fickleness in our hearts that constantly battles back and forth, back and forth. Again, we know this. We come this morning, James tells us previously in our tongue that we worship God out of one side of our mouth and we curse those made in the image of God out of the other side of our mouths. We know this to be true. Genesis 4, chapter 7, or chapter 4 and verse 7. The story of Cain and Abel. God comes to Cain and is like, what happened? What in the world was going on? God's response was, if you do well, will you not be accepted? If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. The sin in your heart, the worldly desires in your heart are not meant to just be ignored and acted like they're not there. They are meant to be ruled over. And God alone can rule over those desires. God alone can do this. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 11 says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. These are the words that we need to use about our soul, about our hearts, about our desires. We need to use this kind of war language. I think many of us are being way too passive, myself included. It's way too simple. We just kind of push it aside. It's not that big a deal. It's just a habit. It's just a thing I go back to. It's no big deal. It's, it's not, it's, it's just a struggle. Scripture doesn't use those kinds of words. Scripture uses you must rule over it. You must wage war against it. That it's coming to destroy you. And the fickleness of our hearts is that we are constantly being pulled away from the desires of the Lord to be satisfied in lesser earthly things that ultimately will destroy us and are ultimately not about us. I love what James says here that these things that you struggle with are never just about you. They always show themselves in your relationship with God and your relationship with others. It's never just about you. It always shows itself in others. In others. He goes on to say in verse, at the end of verse 2, he says, You do not have because you do not ask, and you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. James says here, Now you are so consumed with worldly, earthly kinds of desires that it doesn't even cross your mind to ask God for help. You don't have the help you need because you are so consumed with your own desires that it doesn't even occur to you to say, God, I can't do this without you. Would you provide this for me? We just go about our merry way. We just go about our day, and eventually, sometimes, we ask the Lord for help. 
You see, our desire for God is low. Our expectations of God is low. Our satisfaction in God is low. Our, ultimately, our faith in God is low. And so we don't even look to him for help at times. And there are other times that we look to God for help and we don't get what we want because we're ultimately using God. It's not that we want God for God. It's not that we want to be uh, more in tune with him or grow in our intimacy. We just want something from him. I know my kids at times too. I know my kids love me, but I know a particular tone of voice when I'm asked, hey, dad. And my initial response is, what do you want? It's not, hey, I love you. That's bad on me. I love you no matter what. I'm so glad to see you. It's, I see right through you. What is it that you want from me? You are using me in this particular moment, but I love you anyways. But we are often, we go to the Lord at times, and James is saying, we go to our Lord and we say, hey, dad, I don't really want you but I could really use this. If you could change this circumstance, if you could fix this, if you could provide this for me, if you could do this, that would be amazing. And I know, I'm not going to communicate out loud, but I know that once I get that thing, we're kind of done for a while. I'll set you back aside for a while. We treat God as our servant at times, as the bellhop that we ring the little bell and God comes skipping into the room and say, how may I serve you today? This is not how God is to be treated. This is not how we are to act like him. We treat as if God is some supernatural vending machine in the sky. If I just push a few buttons in the right way, I'll get what I want, and then I'll forget about the vending machine and go about my day. James is telling us here, the reason you're not getting what you want is because God knows your heart. He knows ultimately what you need. He knows ultimately that the things sometimes that we ask for are not what we need, and he is purposefully saying no to us, because he knows what is best for us. And he will give us what we need, not necessarily what we want. And again, the problem is not outside of us. The issue is we need to change and shift our desires. God says, ask anything according to my will. And what happens? You get it. Anything according to my will, God promises us, I will give it to you and give it to you in abundance. God also says, you ask for yourself. The answer is no. You ask and you don't have because you ask because you want to spend it on yourselves. The word here, spending on yourselves, is the same word that we see in Luke 15 describing the prodigal son. In Luke 15, it says, Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered or spent his property in reckless living. It's the same concept, the same idea in Luke and in James. The reason we don't get what we want, because God knows we will squander it. We will spend it on ourselves. And so we don't get those things. And so there's a fickleness in our heart that we need to recognize. James goes on to say, not only is there a fickleness in our heart, but I think more importantly than understanding things about ourselves this morning, we need to understand about God. There is a fierceness of God's jealousy. God is a jealous God. He is actively, intentionally, powerfully jealous God. Now, when I say the fierceness of God's jealousy, I mean the strength and the power of God's jealousy. There is a strength in that. We see in verse 4 and 5, James goes from this kind of back and forth in your heart and says, you adulterous people. At the beginning of this verse, he says, you adulterous people. Now, it seems weird in the middle of this to all of a sudden, out of nowhere, start talking about adultery. 
right? He's talking about these things and murder and covetousness and the desires in your heart. And all of a sudden, he labels this church, you are an adulterous people. But I think we need to really let that sink into us. When James is calling the church, those who are giving over their desires to the world and not giving them to the Lord, an adulterous people. Who are we as those who have come into Christ? We are the very bride of Christ, are we not? We are brought into this covenant relationship. There is a wedding feast waiting for us. We are brought into this forever covenant relationship where he is our husband. We are the bride of Christ. We will be united one and one forever. This beautiful picture. James is reminding us here, which is pretty common throughout the scriptures in the Old Testament, this this idea that though we are committed and covenanted to one, our eyes often drift to another. Our hearts often drift to another. We give our affections to another. We give our time to another. We give our attention to another. And this is, in essence, adultery. We are committed to our God. He is our forever covenant partner, and we are looking to the world. We are looking to anything else to kind of satisfy us. You see, this is the jealousy of God. This is the the righteous jealousy of God, that the one he has called in relationship with himself is looking elsewhere for affection, is looking elsewhere for satisfaction. And God, rightfully so, is pursuing us and calling us back and saying, what you're looking at, what you're longing for, will never, ever satisfy you. I alone will satisfy you. And this is the right kind of jealousy. It is the absolute right kind of jealousy. That if I were pursuing or if I was putting my affections in another woman or in another place, it would be right for Katie to be angry, to pursue me, to come after me, to call me to account, to say, no, your eyes and your heart are for me alone. You have committed to me. Now demonstrate that that commitment by giving all of your affection to me. That's a right response to that. It's right for us to respond in that way. Paul David Tripp talks about this, and he talks about the foolishness of this adultery and going back and forth, and he talks about the reality that what his wife would say if he went to his wife and said, of all the women I love, I love you the most. All of you women, I hope you women kind of cringed a little bit in that statement. Of all the women I love, I love you the most. What an awful thing to say right? Of all of the things I give my attention to God, of all the desires I, I, I go after, all the things I'm satisfied in, of all the things that I love, you're, you're the top of that list. God's response to that, our response as husbands and wives should be, no, 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 there's one you love, and that's me. There's no other women that you love, and you love me the most. It is me and none. And God is the same way. It is not, I love all these, of all the gods I love— I love you the most, which is ultimately what we say, isn't it? When we, our hearts are set on other things, our desires are set on other things, we say to God, of all the gods that I love, I love you the most. And God is not and should not be satisfied in that at all. You see, the cause of a divided heart here that we see in this is this friendship with the world. Which goes on to say in verse 5 is to say, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. The reason our hearts are divided is we're trying to carry too many friendships. We're trying to to, to love too many things, to place our desire in too many things. We have a friendship with the world. What does that mean? Again, that's a 
Christian-y, churchy, religious-y kind of phrase, right? You don't normally go out in your workplace. I can guarantee you in your workplace, unless you're Joe or I as pastors, that you, you use the phrase friendship with the world. That doesn't usually come up in normal conversation. So what does that mean? It means simply that we're finding our significance and our purpose in something other than God. It means that we're defining our identity, not God. We're letting the world define our identity and not God. It means we seek the approval and the acceptance of the world and those around us and not from God. It means we look to what the world offers to give us peace and hope and help. It means we look anywhere else but God. There's a friendship with the world, a a communion uh, with the world, an intimacy with the world, a finding a hope in the world. The question I ask then is, how does this happen? How does friendship with the world happen? Little by little, that's how it happens. It's not one grand decision. It's not this one kind of shift, giant shift in your life. More often than not, it is looking back and saying, how did I get here? It is little by little. It is the voices that we listen to over and over again. It is the things we read. It is the music we listen to. It is the TV that we watch. It is all of those things, little by little, that is little by little, shaping us and molding us and wooing us to themselves. Little by little. And it lulls us into this sleep to think the war is over. All has been settled. Go on with your life. Scripture teaches we are at war. It teaches that we are at war. And so little by little, we must be aware of the war against us. I've said it the last couple of weeks. I'll say it again this morning. There is no such thing as neutrality. The world is not neutral. The world is not just offering you this neutral, innocuous thing in a vacuum. The world is trying to teach you something, trying to woo you with something, trying to come into your heart and give you something that your heart desires. This is what the world, and happens little by little. But the fierceness of God's jealousy comes around that and calls us away from that because it knows ultimately that will destroy us. It knows ultimately that will tear us apart. And God knows ultimately that this is not our identity. That's not who we are. God comes kindly and jealously into our lives and say, this is not you. This is not who I made you to be. This is not who I called you to be. I've I've called you to be so much more. Jesus prays in his high priestly prayer in John chapter 17. He says, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. And I love that Jesus says this. He says, the world hates them. And we would hope that Jesus' next response would be, protect them, take them out, help them get out of this. But his next phrase is, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. And Jesus reminds his disciples of their identity. They are not of the world. Just as I, Jesus says, am not of the world. Sanctify in the truth. Your word is truth. As you send me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. The the response to this, to God's jealousy in our lives and pursuing us and wanting our desires is not to separate from the world. It's not to pull yourself out of the world. It's not to become a monk and go into a cave and never interact with anyone ever. It is to press into the world. 
It is to sanctify your desires. It is to set them apart for the Lord and let them shine so that the world sees your good works and gives glory to the Father in heaven. Jesus prays this very thing. Too many of us want to retreat, and I get it. There are days when I have conversations with my kids that are too hard, and I would just want to say, I would rather not have this conversation. It's too hard. It's too complicated. I would rather we not have to think about these kinds of things at all. But the reality is that we need to press back into that and demonstrate that our satisfaction and our hope is in God alone. He goes on to say in this this verse here, James says, or do you suppose that it is no purpose that the Scripture says God's jealousy over— or th- th- that the Scripture says something? I forget what it is. There it is. That the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the Spirit that he has made to dwell in us. James says in this verse here, he's, he's kind of—this is a kind of a hard verse because James—it feels like James is quoting something that doesn't exist in the Bible. So that's a really hard thing to be like, all right, what is—because if you see this phrase, you don't see a little number or a little cross-reference, do you? James, what I think is saying here in the same way that we say, hey, doesn't the Bible say that we're supposed to love our neighbors? Doesn't the Bible say that God is love and God is kind? Isn't true that the Bible teaches that God is a just God? I don't have particularly in my mind a particular verse or reference to that, but I am sharing you a truth from the Scripture, and I think James is doing the same thing here. That he's saying, doesn't the Scripture teach about God that he is a jealous God? Isn't it true that he teaches these things about us, that he wants to pursue us in these relationships here? That he wants us to know him more than anything else? You see, God is jealous over our hearts. He wants all of us. He deserves all of us. He wants to be the best and the most in our lives. And not because, and I think this is really key here, not because God is petty and insecure, but because he's best. God's jealousy is not tied to any level of insecurity in God. God's jealousy is not tied to any level of pettiness in God. It is tied to the fact that he is best and supreme over all, and he knows what's best, and he wants what's best for us. J.I. Packer says this about God's jealousy, that it is a praiseworthy zeal on his part to preserve something supremely precious. Just kind of connect God's jealousy with his preservation of what is supremely precious. He knows what is best, and he wants what is best, and he will come after what is best. Deuteronomy 6, 4 and 5. God says this as he calls his people out. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And God warns over and over and over again in the Old Testament about his jealousy and about the tendency in Israel's heart and in our hearts to go after other gods, to go after other things. And he warns them of the danger of that because ultimately they will give in and they will be destroyed. How does God respond to us in this jealousy when our hearts are at war within us, when it shows itself in the fickleness of our hearts, when we go after lesser things, when we fight and are in conflict with one another. I think Hosea chapter 3 and verse 1 describes really clearly what God is for in us. In Hosea chapter 3 and verse 1, And the Lord said to me, to Hosea, He said, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Why? Even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. This is the God we serve. He knows the fickleness of our hearts. He will never stop pursuing you. He will never stop going after you. 
His jealousy will continue to drive him because he cares for us and he wants what's best in our lives. Even when we're faithless, God is faithful. Even when we go and are committing adultery again and again and again in our hearts, he welcomes us back again and again and again every single time. And number three here, this offer that we have of this free gift of grace. I love that James ends here, that he doesn't kind of come down with a hammer just to crush us and to say, it's in your heart and you're evil in your heart and God is jealous and he is opposing the proud. But what does James say here in verse 6? But he gives what? More grace. More grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Why does God oppose the proud? Because the proud do not ask for help. It's simply that. Why does God give grace to the humble? Because the humble ask for help. God helps those who are looking to him and say, I need you. More than anything, I need you. I can't do this on my own. I've recognized my weakness. I've recognized my insignificance. I've recognized all of those things, and I need you. And God gives grace and mercy again and again and again, but he gives more grace. So at the end of the day, what we need with all of this is not things outside of us. It's not ultimately to change our circumstances or our finances or our family. What ultimately we need is to change our hearts. And that's an impossible task in and of ourselves. But God gives more grace. What you need this morning is not more law. What you need this morning is not more should-haves. You should do this and you should do that. Stop doing this and start doing that. That's not what you need this morning. What you need this morning, what the church needs desperately is more grace. The one that you are at war with, what do they need more than anything else? More grace. The spouse you are fighting with, what do they need more than anything else? More grace. Your kids that you're constantly in conflict with, what do they need more than anything else from you? More grace. The world that is at enmity with us and that hates us, what do they need from us? More grace. They need to be pointed to God. They need to understand who he is, called to follow after him. More grace. You see, again, connecting back to Luke chapter 15, that God, and reason he doesn't respond to us is because he's going to well, squander it. Luke 15, we see the story of the young man who gets all of this stuff, and he goes and squanders it. Recognizes at the end of this, I am out of everything. I need more. I need to go back to my dad. Luke 15, verse 20, shows the response of the father. And he, the father, arose, or sorry, the young man arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, His father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. I just want to be really clear with you this morning. This is our father in heaven. When we recognize that our desires are at war, when I've given in to worldly things, when I've become friends with the world, when I'm in conflict with other people, all that we need to do is go back home. And on our way back home, our Father will be running at us, embracing us, loving us, preparing a feast for us, not condemning us, not destroying us, not giving us the should-haves, not saying you should have come three days earlier, not saying you should have wasted this, not saying any of that. He says, welcome home. And this is the grace that we need. This is the grace that changes us. This is what ultimately is different than every other belief system in the world. Every other belief system tells you work harder. It's on you. You fix this problem. You made the problem. You fix the problem. 
Christianity is the only religion, the only faith in the world that says, you made the problem, God fixes the problem for you, freely, graciously. Come to me again and again. Come to me. This might be a little odd, but this song has been, in closing, this song has been hitting me over and over again. Um, It's a song by Mumford and Sons, so if you don't know who that is, it's okay, but it's a really great song. The song's called, um, I forget what the song's called, but he talks about this in this, these words in the verse from Mumford and Sons. Sons. It says, See, you told me that I would find a hole within the fragile substance of my soul. And I filled this void with things unreal, and all the while my character it steals. It seems that all my bridges have been burned, but you say, That's exactly how this grace thing works. And I love this phrase, and I'm going to start crying because it's such such a brilliant phrase. It's not the long walk home that will change this heart, but the welcome I receive from the restart. And I think that just I was on a run, and I heard that, and I had to stop dead in my run. Those words to me that basically said, it is not the long walk home. It is not you beating yourself up. It is not you saying, here are the things I need to say to God when I get to God. It's not you working yourself up and cleaning yourself up on the long walk home. What changes you is the one running after you when you get home. And for us this morning, as we see this, as we look through this passage of Scripture, what we need to understand in this, first and foremost, we need to understand in this that God is revealing something to us, showing something to us, that this is us. This is not them. This is not someone else. This is us in James chapter 4. So our first response, as I close this morning, our first response is run back to God. Start running right now. Turn around, do a, a, a turn around face, look to the Lord and start walking, start running back to God. Don't worry about it. Don't try to fix it. Don't try to make it better yourself. Just start walking back to God confessing your need for him, confessing your weakness, confessing that you've been battling all of this stuff. Look to Jesus. Look to him running towards you. Look to him coming after you. Look to him with open arms inviting you back home again. This is what James wants to communicate to us. The challenge in our lives is not that there are things outside of us that need to be changed. The ultimate reality is something inside of us need to be changed. Our desires need to be changed. Our desires need to be submitted to the Lord. Our earthly desires need to be put to death. We need to wage war against those things to not give in to those desires, submitting them to the Lord, allowing him to change us and giving us the grace that we need along the way to make it happen. Let's pray this morning. Father God, I thank you. I thank you that you are a God of more grace that it never runs out. It's never empty. It never, um, you never have to go back. You never have to work up more. That is always in abundance available to me. And so, Father, we are a people who are desperately in need of more grace. God, there is conflicts around us. There is war around us. There is fighting and quarreling around us. And God, we need more grace to change our hearts, to change our desires, so that our outward behaviors will also be changed. God, thank you that your promise, you will give it to us, that you oppose the proud, but you give grace to the humble. Help us to be humble this morning, to recognize our need, to entrust our entire lives to you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.